Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire, where there's no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Those are the first three verses of Psalm 69, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, July the 30th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. I appreciate it. Um, we are continuing our studies in the um, life of David. We're in 2 Samuel 5, the first 12 verses there in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, uh, chapter 17, 1 to 15, and in Mark's Gospel from uh, chapter 7, verses 24 to 37. So what we've got now is, is remember that David has, has for a while been, been king over Judah, just that tribe. Um, Saul's son Ishbosheth had been king over the other tribes until he was murdered by two of his um, people in the military and that who had come to David to boast of what had happened and David had them put to death because he did not see uh, he saw Ishbosheth as um, God's anointed successor and a man of Saul, of Saul, the anointed ones, the, the anointed king's um, son, and, and so he no, he was not going to allow these uh, non-Israelites, particularly, to to murder Ishbosheth, and so now after that come all the tribes of Israel to David at Hebron, where David made his home at that time, and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you'll be my shepherd of my people, Israel, and you'll be prince over Israel. So they came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with him at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. He was 30 years old at that time. He'd been on the run from Saul for seven years, so he would have been 23 at the time uh, he was initially anointed. And, and so then he reigns for another 40 years. He stays in Hebron for seven and a half years, and then he goes to Jerusalem and, and finishes out his term there as ruler over Israel and Judah for 33 years. So then they're going up. The king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, and we're not told why particularly they go up to Jerusalem to, to go against the Jebusites, but they said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off thinking David cannot come in here. And it's the same basic taunting that uh, that you get in the book of Nehemiah when they're saying, oh, even a fox could break down that wall. I mean, it's just, they're, they're saying, David, you, you're nothing to us. The blind and the lame could ward you off. And so David takes the stronghold. He takes Jerusalem and turns it into the city of David. And he said, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the, quote, lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. <clears throat> Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into my house. And then David lived in the city, <clears throat> in the stronghold, and called it the city of David. It's up on a hill, and so it is. it has a, a, a providential protection because of, of how it's situated. And so David stays there in the city, and he becomes greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So David has taken Jerusalem and he's moved the capital, or his capital, from Hebron out to Jerusalem. And he stays there for the next 33 years. Uh, he's so powerful at that point and so well known that the king of Tyre, Hiram, 
uh, sent messengers to David in cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they, the, the kingdom of Tyre, built David a house there. And so David is, is consolidating his power, and he's consolidating his kingdom, and he's centering it in Jerusalem. And, and he, So he's made changes, but if he's going to be king over all the land, then he needs to have a place of his own. And, and so that's why he attacks the Jebusites and takes Jerusalem. And, and they've spoken these words over him. And it's interesting that David ends up saying in here that, that the blind and the lame are hated by David's soul because of the taunt you know he he really took that personally and responded to it and what's interesting is you're going to see here in the next little bit that that david remembers the promise the covenant promise that he made to jonathan and that that covenant promise was that so long as you have a descendant on earth they'll i'll i'll honor them and they'll eat at my table and so soon mephibosheth who you heard about yesterday the one who was lame in his feet because his um, the servant of Jonathan dropped Mephibosheth when he was five, and he, he's lame in his feet. So this lame man, Mephibosheth, will become a part of David's uh, retinue who, who lives in the palace, even though he says his soul hates him. But because of his love for Jonathan, he accepts Mephibosheth as part of his household and takes care of him most of the days of his life. And so we, we see that, that God has a way of of humbling us and God has a way of of causing us to to repent of things we say and the things that we think and so we we can change things if we don't speak in the heat of the moment as David has done here in response to that taunt but in the in this gospel lesson we're we're going to go back to Tyre where the Hiram the king was who sent the cedar trees and the carpenters and the masons to build David a house we're going to go we're going to return to Tyre and we're going to go there with Jesus he's going to he's going to leave from where he was, and he's going to go to, <clears throat> to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which are which are sort of north and west of Israel on the coast. They're Phoenician cities, and so he enters a house there and didn't want anyone to know, but nobody could hide him, even in that place. I mean, the reason to go to Tyre and Sidon is to go to to essentially the equivalent of a desolate place. It's not a desolate place, but but there it's not a Jewish place. And so Jesus has been trying to get away with his disciples, and the people keep following him wherever he goes. And now he goes up into this Gentile area, and, and even there, he can't be hidden. And immediately, Mark says, because it's Mark, it has to be immediately, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of Jesus, and came and fell at his feet. Now, this woman was a Gentile. She's a Syrophoenician by birth. I mean, she's from that area. Um, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And then he says, let the little children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she answered him, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now, it, what's ridiculous it is in the 21st century in fact within the last six months there was a big controversy because there there were a group of um, pastors theologians whatever they were they're not theologians it's not the right word they're just, they're just pastors but but they, they began to uh to insinuate that see jesus this is part of jesus's learning experience it's his learning curve he initially responds to this woman in a racist way let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That he's called her a dog because he, that's his attitude as a Jewish man towards the Gentiles. 
That's complete and utter nonsense. Absolute, complete, and utter nonsense. Jesus didn't have a learning curve. That's not how it works. That's not who he is. Jesus is God. If you believe that Jesus had to learn not to be racist, then then you have denied the basic uh, tenets of the faith. You have you have decided that Jesus is not God. He he is a man who had a, who had an excess or abundance of the God Spirit within him, and so he was able to do the things that he did. But he was a man that God chose later, which would be adoptionism, and that's not the case. That is not the case. From the beginning to the end, Jesus was man and God all at one time. And God's not a racist. And so it, it's a ridiculous idea that superimposed 2,000 2, plus years after the fact. Yes, that, that's exactly why Mark and all the other synoptic gospel writers included this story is to say, see, even Jesus is learning. No, that is not what it is. There's a different point being made here. Jesus is exposing something, and he's, he's digging deep into this woman for faith. Why have you come to me? Why have you come to me? You know I'm a Jewish person. You know that I'm the Jewish Messiah, maybe. But why do you come to me? And, and so he is attempting to pull something from her. And she, she is like the synagogue ruler who sees Jesus defiled by contact with a woman with the issue of blood. He knows where he's come from, from the land of the Gerasenes before he comes there. And, and yet he, he is desperate because of his daughter. And so he, because he's desperate for, because of his daughter, he's willing to allow Jesus to come into the house even though he's ritually unclean at least for all appearances, he's ritually unclean. None of this can be explained because he's not ritually unclean because, as I've said before, you don't, if something, this, the normal state of people within that perspective of cleanliness is we're, we're okay, right? I mean, that, that's not the right word, but, but we're okay. But if we come into contact with something that's unclean, then we become unclean. That only goes one way. You don't communicate cleanliness to somebody else. It goes the other way around. If you come into contact with something that's defiled or unclean, then you become unclean yourself. Jesus, however, whenever he came into contact with these unclean things, made them clean. Which means that he's a different order <laughs> than the rest of us um, because he communicates cleanliness to them rather than being the other way around. And so th that's the... The synagogue ruler, by all rights, could have said, no, you can't come into my house. I'm really sorry. We're going to be all ritually defiled if you do. Once the child's dead, everybody there's ritually defiled anyway. But and then he comes in. Jesus, he's desperate, this man is. And Jesus is not deterred by the fact that she's dead. He's not worried about coming into contact with that dead body because he's getting ready to make it live. And so it's... The, the same basic premise here is this woman is desperate for her child, and she's willing to, to continue to press in in faith. I, look, I, I don't care what you say to me. I do have a response to you, but it's all about faith. And he's pulling forth this faith from her. And, and he says in response to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. I mean, she's begging Jesus because she believes that he can do something about it. And so we, when we pray in, in our tradition in, in Anglicanism, we pray before we go to communion, and then we, we acknowledge that we are unworthy so much to gather up the crumbs under your table. And it's, in, it's because of this woman. 
that's that language that we're talking about. We're expressing our unworthiness and his greatness, but his mercy and his love for us in that he invites us to that table. And so she's not claiming any kind of worthiness here. But Jesus does this miracle for her because now you can see the faith of the Syrophoenician woman in contrast to the faith of, or the lack of faith in places like his hometown. And so then he goes from there and he goes to the Sea of Galilee, but, but not into Jewish territory. Again, he goes to the Decapolis, the Ten Cities, which is kind of near where the Gerasenes are. And, and so this is, again, Gentile territory. And so here we go again. And the man comes with a speech impediment. They begged him to lay his hand on him. And so then Jesus does. He takes this guy apart from the people. He puts his fingers in his ear, spits, touches his tongue, looked up to heaven and says, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Now that's a true miracle. I had a, uh, an uncle, I guess it was when I was a kid, who was deaf he had been he had had an accident or an injury when he was a kid and it caused him to be deaf the rest of his life and when he spoke he and his wife were both deaf in fact and when they spoke it would be haltingly it wouldn't be speaking plainly and so so here this guy is able to talk and do everything without a problem and that's a true miracle i mean it's a wondrous thing to see um the deaf be able to speak one way or another whether it's it's lip reading and speaking or whatever but but to say they speak suddenly speaks plainly is it's a miracle similar to the ones where where a man who's never walked for instance gets up and immediately begins to walk or leaps or whatever and so jesus now tells him hey don't tell anybody about this and maybe this is the thing. Maybe we've encouraged people in the church for too long to go out and do evangelism because, well, they don't do it. Um, but here, Jesus tells them not to do it, and the immediate thing they do is they do it more. So maybe what we should say, maybe the way we should preach is to say, don't tell anybody about Jesus. Keep it to yourself. Maybe then people would go out and they would gossip the gospel in that way. We get this in the Acts lesson. You see Paul um, moving along he and silas are moving along and they they go to thessalonica to a synagogue and paul goes there he goes to the synagogue and on three separate sabbaths he argues with them from the gospel from from the scriptures i'm sorry and then he he gets he says he explains and it proves it was necessary for the christ to suffer and rise from the dead and said this jesus who i proclaim to you is the christ some believed including a great many Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews there get jealous, and so they get the wicked men of the rabble. I love that, right? They form a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attack the house of Jason, who was their host, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. But they couldn't find them there, and so they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before um, before the city authorities, saying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. See, again, you can't bring a religious charge. You've got to make it a civic charge, a civil charge. You've got to, you've got to be able to make it under the civil law. You, you've got to be able to make some sort of an argument to get people upset, because otherwise they're going to look and go, what are the Jews fighting about over there? So they've got to make it something more than that. So they begin to talk about Jesus as king and all that. Well, we, we went through all that. We've already been through all that in the, in the trial under Pilate. Um, and some of the and the people were disturbed, so they um, they took money as security from Jason and the rest, and then they let them go because they don't know. I mean, you know, that, okay, whatever, you know, maybe. <laughs> so they let them go, and then they go to Berea, and then what we're told is they get to the Jewish synagogue there, and they begin to do the same thing that they always do. And the, but the people of, of Berea, 
Luke tells us, are, are more noble than the people that were in Thessalonica because they received the word with gladness and they, and they, they eagerly examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And that's exactly what we should all be doing. Whenever we hear a preacher or a teacher or whatever, we need to know the word for ourselves and, and, and we need to, to examine if you, if you make an odd claim that I've never heard before, then, then I need to be able to go to Scripture and I need to be able to find that and I need to be able to verify it for myself. I, don't, I shouldn't take anything, especially if it's a new word, right? Like the one I told you about with the gospel interpretation of Jesus being a racist. Yeah, no, no. You, you're going to have to show me a lot more than, than you said that 2,000 years later. Has the church ever said that? Has anybody ever believed that before? And you don't get to bring new fire to the table um, unless I can verify it for myself. And so many believe there. But <laughs> when the Jews from Thessalonica, where he just come from, learned that the word of God was proclaimed, they came there also, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And so therefore they, the brothers sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy actually stayed. And, and then Paul's moving on. He's moving on to Athens, and he gets to Athens, and he, he sends word back to Silas and Timothy and said, come on, I need you here in Athens. And so we've got to be prepared for opposition, of course. Just like David had to be prepared for opposition from the Jebusites when he wanted to take Jerusalem. He, ha he had to be prepared for that. And then Paul was prepared always for that. And it doesn't mean you have to be the best apologist in the world, and you need to be able to explain things like creationism and evolutionism and all that. You don't have to be prepared to do all that kind of stuff. I'm going to be honest with you. That's not really the argument that wins anybody. It's something really more important in the church to build up your faith as apologetics. Mostly what you need to be able to do is be able to defend what you believe. And to say, I don't believe this in spite of evidence. I believe it because of the evidence, the evidence of the Word of God. I believe that Jesus indeed was who he said he was. I don't believe I believe that he was resurrected from the dead because that was attested by many witnesses. I believe that that he appeared to those witnesses, and I, and I believe all these other things because I believe them. Not because I believe them without evidence, but because I do actually have the evidence, and and I believe in the Word of God. I believe that it is God's Word, and I believe that it's true, and and that's what we need to be able to stand on. You be prepared for the opposition. But, but don't be overwhelmed by the opposition because it's going to be there. Know that you have the power of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit in you, though, and, and that Spirit will testify to you regarding the truth.